Hello and welcome to Film Disruptors, episode 8. My name is Alex Stoltz and this is the show which brings you the game changers in film, whether that's in storytelling, production design, finance, distribution. And this week I'm delighted to welcome someone who has been disrupting the film industry for over four decades, Lord David Putnam. David really needs little introduction. He's a BAFTA fellow, a member of the House of Lords since 1997, president of the Film Distributors Association, and he of course had a very long, successful and extensive career in film, including Academy Award triumphs and running a Hollywood studio. I recently met David at the House of Lords. We had a wide-ranging conversation that takes in his career, where he sees the future of film as a storytelling platform. We talk about theatrical windows and get David's pretty damning take on that. Talk about education and much more. If you are enjoying Film Disruptors, may I suggest a couple of ways to stay in touch. Firstly, subscribe on iTunes. This will mean you have the latest episodes as soon as they drop. Just search Film Disruptors on iTunes and click subscribe. Secondly, if you go to the home of Film Disruptors, www.alexstoltz.com, you can sign up for our email newsletter. And this is also where you can find out more about our guests, access the Film Disruptors back catalogue and get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. So that just leaves me to say thank you for listening. And now I'm going to hand you over to Lord David Putnam. And I started the show by asking David about his work in education. Well, I think the, the, the fact that I entered this world in, actually in around 1992 uh, although I always had a, a, a genuine interest, was to do with really what I saw as educational failure. Uh, number one, I was, I wouldn't say I was kicked out of school, I, but I was almost kicked out of school, as being, but as being kind of useless and a waste of space. I'd passed my 11 plus, I was at grammar school. And uh, it, it, I was getting nowhere, I was bored to tears and it wasn't working. And I'd left school basically having been told by the school that I was thick in, 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 in real terms. Um, having left school... I sort of realised I was 16, I realised what I'd done, and I took myself off to night school. And I discovered to my absolute amazement that I was actually a natural learner. I liked learning. I became a voracious reader of the things that interested me, and I became a passionate to, you know, tender of the, of the seminars that interested me. And in a period of, I think, the next four years, I took nine different subjects, and they included a very, very kind of weird scattergun. I don't even remember why, but I did a business administration course, so that made sense. I did a copyright law course, which had proved to be absolutely invaluable, not because I ever became a lawyer, but because I learned how to talk to lawyers in legal language, understood the terminology. That became... I did a course in psychology in relation to advertising that I think was valuable to me. Anyway, so I just I discovered that I was a learner. So then that... I kind of, it stayed with me. Well, what's wrong with this education system that didn't find out itself or for, on my behalf that I, that I actually had a, that, that, I, that I was a learner and that I was not dumb. Uh, and I started looking back and realised that the world of education was not just conservative with a small C, 
but entirely, and bear in mind, we are now talking about the late 50s, entirely focused on providing a, a workforce which even then was out of date. Um, now, what then happened is I went through the ranks. I became a messenger uh, in an ad agency. Uh, I'm still going to night school. Uh, and I emerged with a really pretty good job in advertising. And, and I liked it. And I was, a, it was, I was a round peg in a round hole. And all this stuff stayed with me. I started doing some teaching because I felt very privileged. I was at a fantastically good ad agency and we were winning a lot of awards and I was getting you know, very well very well remunerated, actually. Uh, and in 67, I suppose, I was, I was, what was I, 26, 27, I felt, well, I've done that. I've been in advertising 10 years. I had done been more successful than I ever expected to be. And I decided that the thing I really loved, which was true, was the movie industry. And knowing nothing, really, I kind of moved myself into it. I had a business in the interregnum just to raise some capital. I needed some capital. And my dad had been a photographer. I knew about photography and I formed a photographic um, agency. But really only with the purpose of, of generating sufficient revenues and learning how to run a business on my own. So I became a film producer. Again, possibly more by luck than by judgment, I had a eventually successful career. And that this thing never left me that uh, I was a learner. Now, give you two examples. When I went to the advertising industry, I thought, well, I'm going to know about this business. And I really read myself into it. I actually understood the history of advertising, where it had come from, what had started it, what would, you know. And I did exactly the same uh, when I went to the film industry. I became really quite knowledgeable about the history of the, of the film industry and how it had emerged and the way it had emerged. So it was quite natural. By the time I was asked to play a much fuller role in politics, and that was in 97, I'd played an advisory role up to that time, to, uh, I started thinking about, well, what else can I do? And um, David Blunkett, out of the blue, asked me if I'd like to join him at the Department of Education. And I, I leapt at it. I leapt at it for two reasons. A, because it was an out for me after 30 years from the movie industry. And I wanted a kind of an elegant you know, way of, of leaving. And B, because I suddenly realised it was that it had always, always fascinated me and I wanted to know at first hand what was wrong. So, that, so now well, I've been doing that for 20 years, exactly 20 years. Um, I feel that the most important contribution I've made is by making the assumption that most of the assumptions, making a new assumption that most of the old assumptions are wrong. I was very lucky and I teamed up early on with a man called Stephen Heppel, another man called Ken Robinson, and we were a sort of phalanx seeking change. And I think probably if you'd asked us when we started out on this journey, for the, how we would have done over 20 years, we were expected to have got much further. But on the other hand, I do think we've been change agents. And I do think we've been, um, uh, broadly speaking, a force for good. That's a very long answer to a very short question. Uh, well, fascinating to hear that journey. And uh, today's what? What are the specific challenges today? Because the world has has changed again so much. And where? Do you, what do you see as being the the, the, the opportunity? I suppose in ter- in terms of training or educating the next generation for the challenges and opportunities. I think the starting point in any of these discussions is you have to work from the assumption that 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 we're not doing things as well as we might. If you if you think you're doing well, that's a good moment at which you begin to close down thought. So first of all, what could we be doing better? And the truth is, there's a lot we could be doing better. Uh, the areas I'd like to see us looking at is we now know more about science, uh, brain science, for example. We know probably twice as much as we knew when ICE came into the into the um, 
uh, the education business 20 years ago. So brain science has taken huge leaps forward. Are we really utilizing what we know about the brain, the way the brain absorbs information? Uh, and are we applying it as well as we might throughout education, most particularly in primary education? There's one. Secondly, technology. Um, technology has got its fans and it's got its critics, but the truth is the opportunities that technology offers to the world of learning, teaching and learning are phenomenal. Are we utilizing them as well as we might? No, we're absolutely not. The third one is that the world of work in 2030, i.e. the point at which most people currently at school will, will enter the world of work, um, will be a very, very different place. Are we adequately preparing them for how different that's going to be? No, we're not. So I'd say those are three significant areas in which uh, uh, there's still a lot of work to be done. You're listening to Film Disruptors and I'm in conversation with David Putnam. And in this section, I ask for David's views on the theatrical windows debate and the potential introduction of a premium VOD window. If you're enjoying Film Disruptors, may I suggest subscribing on iTunes. Just log on to iTunes, search Film Disruptors and click subscribe. Well, we're in the process of constant change. I mean, if I go back to the early part of my own career, the early, when I say not just the beginning, but the early part of my career, the window for, for a sale to television, bear in mind television, was the only other, was the only other window, was five years. You, you made your movie and five years from the, date of, from the date of release, it could appear on television. That quite quickly shortened to three. Then along came um, uh, VHS, and the VHS window, I think, initially was a year, and that quite quickly shortened to six months. So I've lived through a period of constantly shortening windows. And for the rationale for the windows being less and less obvious. I mean, the truth is, the film industry tried to kill off the television business from the very, at the very beginning, thinking it could just, by withholding its movies, it was, it was going to put the boot in. It didn't quite work out that way. Um, uh, I would argue today that what the industry, particularly exhibitors, have managed to do is created the very worst nightmare they could give themselves. They have effectively created the piracy window. There is no other business in the world, and I'm happy to be challenged on this, where you launch a product, you spend significant resources on that product, you hopefully launch a good product, you put it on the shelves of your supermarket, you then, six weeks later, withdraw it for a period of uh, 17 weeks as happens to be in the UK, and then believe you can put it back on and the public are not going, then the interim public will have, will have continued the same amount of interest they have. It's just a nonsense. And if you actually proposed it to any other business in the world, they'd laugh. But it's actually what we're doing. We are actually, we're, we're withdrawing our product from the public and then getting surprised when they found alternative and principally illegal means of obtaining the product. How mad is that? Uh, it's kind of beyond, it's beyond bonkers. The suggestion, the best suggestion I had, I had years ago was uh, when VHS came out, was to go and talk to Rank and to EMI. I said, look, the real smart thing to do here, buy the shop next door to your cinema and become the only legal outlet for VHSs. That's, you know, you, you will then control that market. Not only didn't they do it, they just saw it as the cannibalization of their, their, their cinema business. They then allowed every retired cab driver to open his own and very quickly illegal uh, VHS. Uh, and, and that's where the really, in a sense, that's where the nightmare of piracy started. 
The only thing that saved the film industry, and this is a wonderful irony, that saved the film industry from the same fate as the music industry was download speeds. If download speeds had been faster, the same fate would have befallen the movie industry as befell the, uh, the, the, the music industry. The fact that this is an industry or a sector with industry that doesn't understand that and doesn't see the, the madness of the uh, situation to manage to construct for itself is it's it, it leaves me sort of gobsmacked really. Mm. Uh, well, that's very clearly put. I mean, I guess there's a there's a powerful status quo, but I mean, uh, on, on taking not a counter point of view, but a different point of view, it could be damage to cinemas if the window is shortened or the film becomes available quickly mm-hmm. afterwards. Do you, do you see that as a, yeah. as a, a threat? No, an interesting thing is where windows have shortened in various parts of the world, particularly most recently in the United States, there is absolutely no evidence of it affecting cinema admissions. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, the world's, the, the, the new box office record was set last weekend or weekend before last rather, with Fast and Furious 8, which owned at a bigger, at, at a higher gross than any film ever. So the industry's doing well. The cinemas themselves are doing, I think, pretty well. Um, no, wherever in the world windows are shortened, there's been no consequent drop in, um, in, uh, in cinema admissions. Now, if that was the case, if it were, there was a clear evidential and causal relationship between shortened windows and, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and admissions dropping, then you could begin to have discussion. But there is no causal relationship, and in fact, evidence points the opposite direction. Okay, that's very clear. Well, um, another another area of distribution um, that's talked about a lot is bringing more younger people into the in, into the pipeline. I guess as, as consumers of film. Yeah. I mean, you've talked before about how influential cinema was for you growing up. Is it is it our obligation to do more to try to encourage more the millennial so. audience to come in? I, I'm, well, I'm addressing exactly this tomorrow morning about a speech I'm giving at the, at, for the FDA, my annual, whatever you want to call it, sort of mm-hmm. State of the Union. And, and I'm very much addressing this issue. Uh, I think that cinemas could and should, in their own interest, be doing more to develop the, the, the young audience. I think distributors can distributors themselves can only go so far. But the first experience, and I'm illustrating this actually tomorrow, the very first experience of going to the cinema is a really a crucial one. Cinema is a love affair. If you fall in love at the age of five, six, seven with the movies, you will probably remain in love for quite a long time. Alternatively, there are so many other ways for that five and six and seven-year-old to watch content film that if you allow that to happen and the love affair isn't nurtured, you will suffer accordingly. So I do think that the that, that primary age, particularly that primary age, top of, the, top of the primary age audience, ought to be nurtured in a way that uh, it just isn't the case. I was very lucky. You know, I was a member of the generation that went to Saturday morning pictures. In a sense, I, as an audience, was, was quite carefully nurtured, uh, not only with a, the good Disney films once, twice a year, but also, you know, the, this local cinema was the place I visited at least once a week because for six months I could go and watch us with my mates. I could go and watch us Saturday morning pictures. Thinking now a bit more about the product itself as opposed to the, the, the you know, the exhibition of it. Um, one of the key missions of your career is to d- demonstrate that films can both be entertaining and informed. And I'd just love to get your perspective on, on that in today's environment. Do you, st- do, you, do you see that have 
has having been realised uh, or is being realised at, at the moment with... Sporadically, yeah. I think the answer to your question, honestly. Right. It, 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 it's no point pretending, pretending that from time to time, <clears throat> every year, a group of pictures don't come out that absolutely delight me. They tend to be around November. Um, and uh, so by the, by the late summer, I, I do begin to get some sense of despair. But, um, I mean, it's very interesting. And in a sense, I'm the wrong person to ask. Because, for example, the film that's just, I think, done a bit, Fast Furious 8, it's just done a billion dollars, a billion dollars in 12 days. I have never heard of its style, literally. I wouldn't know what he looked. If he walked into this room now, I wouldn't know. Now, that does convince me that I'm probably off the pace a little bit. Um, but having said that, the real issue is the filmmakers themselves. What are the ambitions of filmmakers? If you want to make Fast Furious 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and that's actually your ambition, and what you buy with it is a mansion in Beverly Hills and two swimming pools, that is a career, I suppose. It wouldn't have any appeal to me, genuinely. And interestingly, I think that one of the nicest things of coming, being a member of the, if you like, 1960s generation, is we did have other aspirations. Money, and I don't want to sound po-faced about this, money has never been a driver in my life. I've always earned, since I was 21 years old, I've always earned decent money. Uh, I live a nice life, well, one wife, two kids. I can eat two meals a day you know, before without feeling stuffed, and that's about it. Um, I've never been driven by the idea of being rich. To me, the idea of being rich, in a sense, is incompatible with the idea of being a creative human being. Doesn't mean they're, you, you, but you're kind of making a choice. Mm. If you really want to, really, really want to find out how creative you are as a human being, what your contribution to your, you know, fellow humankind might be, you don't discover it in the same bag as making a lot of money. It doesn't happen that way. Hmm. doesn't mean, incidentally, that some very, very worthwhile movies don't end up making a lot of money. But I would lay a pound to a penny that in 99 out of 100 of those cases, that was not what drove them. I've got a wonderful little quote from Colin Welland after we won the Oscar for Chariots, where he was being interviewed, and I've, I've kept it as a clip, and he says, you know how thrilled he was, he says, but that wasn't the purpose, he said. We made Chariots of Fire because we wanted it to be true, we wanted it to be good, and we wanted it to say something. That's why we made it. He said, all the Oscars and the hoopla, that's just been a bonus. Hmm. And he's right. Did you see yourself as being part of a movement at that time? I no. mean, no. I've never seen myself as part of a movement. I feel, I've seen myself as a, a very fortunate um, beneficiary of a, of a kind of 1960s movement which did begin to um, ask questions as to, you know, well, because I came out of advertising, that did begin to ask, I thought, I think overdue questions about the gap that had arisen between what was fine art and what was commerce. Uh, the best way I can explain that is by explaining that in the early 80s, when I became trustee of the Tate, for example, uh, the Tate's, to say that the Tate didn't welcome visitors would be something of an understatement. I mean, that they, they opened, reluctantly opened their doors and people came in, and, but basically it was an interruption in what was an otherwise curatorial world. Um, it, people like myself saw exciting and, invigor and invigorating museums as being great places for the public to come to without any loss whatsoever of their curatorial value and their curatorial in integrity. 
And that was a that that's the only movement I would claim to be an inheritor of. I'm not certain it wasn't wasn't the greater of the inheritor. I was inherit I was the inheritor of a world that said, you know what, pop popular the popularization of important things is is an honourable is not is an honourable pursuit. Does that make sense? Mm. Whereas yeah, I think does, that yeah. prior to that, there was a sense that you either an academic pursuing the, a purest food vision of, of what you were doing, mm. or you were sort of a, a marketeer. Mm. And advertising in some ways was a, a natural place to where explore I was, that. Terrain. Where I was, I was very lucky. I, mean, I was an ad agency called Colette Dickinson Pierce, where we had very real aspirations. Or when I say we, we were trained by the people who ran the agency to have aspirations. And that's why I think Ridley was attracted there and Alan Parker was attracted there, a, a, a large number of us were attracted by the work. And miraculously, the work turned out to be um, not just successful, but, you know, did us a power good as well. In terms of that, the question about storytelling and finding stories which inform and challenge, it, it, are we, has the, has the financing structure or the financing of the studios changed to, to an extent you can't, that you're not finding those more intelligent movies being made at that, I guess you call them a mid-range. I think there's a it, it, there's an issue or there's a risk reward issue in the mid-range, mm. where there is a you know you are gambling quite heavily on a twenty-five to forty million dollar picture. Definitely, one of the reasons you're gambling is because if it looks as though it might not work, might not work. If the studio doesn't have absolute faith in it. Are you really going to gamble another 30 million promoting it? So you might just, frankly, take cut your losses, sell it to television, or or, or give it a minimum window. Mm-hmm. So you don't get that extraordinary additional marketing push. Now I experienced that in a much smaller way, like with Midnight Express. Um, Midnight Express was a classic in its in its day mid-budget movie. It was three million dollars, mm-hmm. which would have been a mid-budget film. Fortunately. Uh, the studio and, and, and the people surrounding the movie had enough faith in it. They actually ended up spending almost twice as much on the promotion of the film as on the film. And that's what drove it and became a huge hit. If there'd been a sense that, you know, this is a nice movie, it's cost $3 million, we're not really sure it's going to work, we'll spend $250,000, $300,000 and maybe make a real good TV deal, that's what would have happened. Mm. So I think what happens with those mid-range movies is they do require a certain amount of a kind of a zealot faith mm. from the studios to say, you know, this could really work. The studio, the film this year that benefited from that was Hidden Figures. I don't know who it took by surprise, but I mean, it ended up making very serious money. It cost three and a half million dollars. Mm. Um, Moonlight, even more so. I mean, someone had a lot of faith in Moonlight because uh, Moonlight, they were, you know, they were offered a very, very good deal to sell out if they could go straight to, I think, to Netflix or maybe straight to Amazon. Right, yeah. And they resisted it and, and, and put it out and, Mm-hmm. Since the rest is history, that didn't, although it didn't make the kind of money that um, Hidden Figures made, yeah. Hidden Figures made as much money as Manchester by the Sea and Moonlight and something, and I think all pretty well all the nominated films put together. Mm. Wow, very heartening. It is very heartening, yeah. hugely heartening. Yeah, and the fact that Moonlight and Hidden Figures together cost five billion dollars. Yeah, that's remarkable. Yeah, yeah, so many remar- remarkable things about those those films and their success. Uh, do you see there being well, there's, there's more pressure on people's time? There's more pressure on uh, people on different ways to to 
communicate stories to people, gaming, high-end TV, virtual reality now. How, how, how do you see film, how, how should film position itself in, in that mix? Do you have a view on, on, on that in terms of selling itself to the, to, to, as a storytelling platform? Well, as a storytelling platform, I mean, I've got lots of views, so let me try and subdivide the question for me. Yes. As a storytelling platform, I believe, and I always believed, and we're going to my grave believing, that the power of cinema rests in its rests in the power of identity that exists within the individual movie. If you can create that power of that sense of identity, that power of identity in, within the film, then the cinema going experience itself works really, really works. If, on the other hand, what you're looking at is an interesting plot interesting characters, uh, they say a thriller. So it basically, you will probably get as much sitting in the cinema, it's sitting in, a, uh, in an aircraft, looking at your iPad uh, with the earphones on, as you really will in the cinema. So it, the, this issue of identity for me is, I teach this all the time, is absolutely central. Who am I in this movie? Right. Which aspect of my life? or my story, or my experience, is being tested in this movie. If you can answer all those questions with a tick, that's a movie. If, on the other hand, what you're looking is looking at something, uh, take, I mean, I'm a big fan of Ken Burns, so let's say you're looking at Ken Burns' Civil War. You don't need to be in a cinema to watch that. In fact, actually, it could be a distraction. I'm a big Adam Curtis fan. What I've discovered is the only way of looking at Adam Curtis' work now is almost on an aircraft in a very, very focused way mm. on this. Mm. Then I can take it in. Mm. Helped a lot, incidentally, by efforts. Helped a lot by the fact that I, I'm creating my own very intimate cu- cubicle. Like, like VR in a way, yeah. yes. Yeah. So there's that. I hope this has answered the question. There's this very, very clear differentiator for me. Now, tomorrow at the FDA, I'm going to talk about uh, the first experience going to the cinema, and I'm actually showing quite deliberately a clip of Bambi and Death of Bambi's Mother. The point I want to make is that decisions like that, moments like that, are what makes cinema. Death of Bambi's mother would not work on an iPad. Not really, Mm. in my my Mm. view. Mm. You need to be in that that environment. You need to be caught up in it and experience it. So as a kid, for me, I was Bambi when that happened. Mm. The shock. We were all Bambis. Well, we were. (laughs) Now, that's... I... I don't want to overstate this, although I almost can't overstate it. I cannot tell you how important and powerful I think that is. To me, that's, that is the bedrock of what is a movie. You're listening to Film Disruptors, and I'm in conversation with David Putnam. And in this final section, I asked David about the issue of diversity in the film industry and get his views on how we can address that once and for all we talk about david's career and also his advice for emerging filmmakers if you're enjoying film disruptors may i suggest you join our email list you can do this by going to alexstoltz.com and clicking sign up i want to talk about diversity in the industry um it's still a huge issue. I know when you were at Columbia Pictures, you introduced some programs then yep. to try to bring more women and ethnic minorities into the into the industry. But still, you know, today less than 10% of directors, for example, just directors are, are, are women. 
and just focusing on gender as well. So, yeah, I'd love to get your thoughts on that and how how you see that being finally overcome. Well, interesting. Uh, Columbia, uh, and I'm going to take more credit than I'm to, but I saw it as more to do with an issue of fluidity than diversity. But by that I mean, I was asking questions like, are there some really great editors there who suddenly found themselves aged 33 trapped as editors who actually could be great directors? Are there some great cinematographers there who really all they're waiting for is the break to direct? And the reason I started to ask those questions is I was always extremely impressed that in the craft grades in the movie industry, let's take, take a, a, um, a camera operator in those days. Camera operator took an, let's say he was very successful. He took an enormous gamble the day he turned down a job as camera operator because he wanted to be a lighting camera. Okay. And, and that was heart stopping. You know, you get a mortgage, you got kids, and you were actually saying no to being employed to do a good job because it wasn't the job you ultimately wanted. Mm. And so what I tried to do was ensure that there was a greater level of fluidity. The people who they felt they could direct, we give them a chance to direct with, with shorts. So we had an entire shorts program. Then we had the other issue in, in Southern California of Mexican. There was there were no Mexicans working effectively other than as kind of wranglers and and and, and drivers. Hmm. Uh, but, but where is there a talent base here for Mexicans? We were very lucky. We did a movie called La Bamba, and a we were able to do it with a, a lot of Mexicans in the film. But we did something quite unique. We actually released day and date a Mexican, a, a Spanish version, and an American, and an English version to prove that we were, you know, conscious of the fact that there were some terrific stories, uh, Nexus stories. We then did a, subsequently did a couple of others while I was there. So it wasn't, it wasn't an issue of diversity. Diversity, in a sense, diversity as we know it, was only part of what I was trying to address. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to address a broader thing, which was mm. how do you get more fluidity into this business? Mm. How do you move it around a bit more? How do you find out how much talent someone's got. And now, that was made easier for me because I'd spent, at that point, I'd spent almost 20 years working at National Film Television School. So I, I was accustomed to a world where people were trying things out and, uh, and experimenting and making changes. There's two or three excellent directors who emerged from the NFTS who started their cinematographers who switched. And we actually would encourage that after a year. If you, know, if you felt that actually your talents could go in another direction, we would actively encourage you to do it. So, um, yeah, why is it taking so long? Uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful line, get back to Ken Burns, there's a wonderful line in a program of his uh, on baseball. He did a wonderful series on baseball. And there's a line of Mario Cuomo talking about um, Jackie Robinson. And the... The program has kind of posited the fact that what a triumph it was when Jackie Robinson became a major league baseball player. And Cuomo just says, he's interviewed, it cuts to him and he says, Yeah, he said, but why? Why did it take so long? What were we thinking about? You know, that it took us 50 years to realize these guys were really gifted and talented. And, and it's a really interesting question. And I think it's the question we're not asking enough is. Why is it taking us so long? I was in the debate in the House of Lords. It exactly, was about exactly this last night. Exactly this. What is it? How do we throw up these barriers? Uh, and the debate was about whether you needed regulation, legislation, or, or education. Uh, my own view, having been disappointed for as many years as I have, is you do need to bring in some forms of, of 
legislation that create the regulation that asks the right questions. It's about the question. It's about asking the right questions. Hmm. I mean, for example, in the UK, why is it so hard for uh, black and Asian people to even get an interview? On what basis? Hmm. So it's not just gender. Hmm. Then it's no. not just race. No. I deliberately yeah. took that question away. I wanted to do because I wanted to try. And, I want to untrap myself. From the from the gender race issue, yes. and say it's bigger than that. It's yes. bigger and broader than that. Yeah. It's an opportunity, yeah. and that op- that issue of opportunity exists right across the right, yeah. right across the whole sector. Yeah, a reframe in in those ways might might unstick things. Perhaps. Well, it gets people to think differently. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you do see as a guy with a good job sitting at home with a mortgage and kids, and he's going to say no, he's going to pick up a phone and say. And it sounds great. I know I've loved working with you in the past. I want to be a cinematographer. Mm. Mm. That's huge. And uh, I don't know, this is quite the same thing, but obviously you know, a woman, you know, who goes on maternity leave and is unable to, you know, un- unable to get back in or certainly to take much more pressure to take a, you know, to, a leap in that way if you're, if you're getting back in. So we're bad. We're just bad at this stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I know we're we're, we're coming to the end, so I just wanted to have, uh, have a couple more questions. If that's okay, just yep. uh, to you obviously have nowhere near enough time to talk about your your career. But I wondered if you could put out two or three, uh, two three key points from your career which you, looking back, you feel were critical in terms of, mm-hmm. um, I guess, turning points really, and from from your career. Um, I think going to work at um, Colin Dickinson and working for a very tough guy indeed, uh, Colin Millwood, and him hammering into me the fact that creativity is a muscle, not a God-given thing. You don't be good. Now, because, David, you're not even very good at stick figures doesn't mean you're not creative. Uh, and the truth is that by, at, at school, you know, even in the art class, you weren't, if, you, if you couldn't draw... If I couldn't draw your face so that you recognise your face, that meant I wasn't creative. Mm. So the discovering that creativity comes in all sorts of ways, in shapes and forms, and that it is a muscle and it's a way of thinking, that was, that was a hugely important turning point for me. Mm. Um, learning that you could train your eye as well, that, uh, that, that, that you know, the process of, of, of looking at things was a was was a was a le- was in itself a learning process. I'll give you this interesting example because it it's literally from last week. Uh, I just came back from France. When I was sixteen, my favourite painting in the world was um, the Rembrandt's <coughs> uh, the, the dance at the Moulin Galette. Galette. Remember the you know the very full picture of the the, the dance, very colourful with lanterns and everything else. It was a beautiful picture, and I thought it was the most wonderful painting. Uh, today, what I realise is that my interest in that painting was a sense was that I kind of would, wanted to be there. It was, it, was a, it was an evocative painting, and I really, really wanted to be there. And yeah, I discovered in the last 10 years uh, a real love of, of Leger and Miro. And I know that I wouldn't have even looked at Leger and Miro when I was in my teens and, and maybe even early 20s. And so what process has happened between then and now I'm 76? What process has occurred whereby I've been able to strip away and see a different essence in things. True in music to a degree as well, I think, but, mm-hmm. but painting's nice and vivid example. So that's, I think, understanding that I was part of, that I was in, 
that the process was a developing process all the time, that we're improving and improving and improving. That would have been, I think, an important one. And the third one, really important one, was having the courage of, of learning that if I didn't think it was right, I had to believe my instincts. So a cut of a movie, a length of a scene, uh, a line in a script, that I learned the hard way, really, that irrespective of the fact that the person I might be working with had won an Oscar, and I did learn the hard way, uh, if I thought it was a crap line in the script and I was going to produce the film, the line had to go. And that was quite a hard sell to yourself, you know. That was, am I being arrogant? Uh, am I, uh, what, you know, what, right, what right do, I've won nothing, what right do I have to tell this guy? But I learned that result of working actually with Ken Russell and working with a guy with Jacques Demi who had won uh, Oscar, I think, for um, the Umbrellas of Cherbourg, mm. who were delightful men. I liked both of them very much, but they were just plain wrong about stuff. And unfortunately, in both cases, I didn't have the courage, this is early on in my career, mm. to say, uh, this, is, this isn't working, this is not very good. Mm. And only a result of the failure of those films did I realise, well, hang on a second, if I'm going to fail, I want to fail that, that it was me that made that violent decision that resulted in failure. Does that, does that make sense? That was a very, very, very important watershed for me. Mm -hmm. Because early on, I was only too pleased, in a sense, to associate myself with people I thought were, mass were massively gifted and that it was this kind of privilege to, to be on their coattails. Mm. And then I discovered that really wasn't enough. I don't feel I've explained that as well as I No, I think, I think I think you have. Um, I'm, is that was that always an instinctual gut feeling you're talking about there, or just or, or was it? Could you? It, would it be an in, you could intellectually articulate uh, why? Really, why actually, the only change? thing I can think of that maybe helped, but I thought it would be the answer. My dad, as I mentioned, was a photographer. My dad, uh, each day, in the, in the newspaper, certainly on the weekend, was a sort of little masterclass. He'd say, no, this is a great story. This, it's really weird. This story's on page five. It should have been on page one. And so he would criticise me. But the other thing he did, he had two set squares, you know, two bits, just bits of paper, mm. of a card. And he'd say to me, look, silly buggers. He said, look, if you crop this picture here, look how much stronger that is. Now, I was only seven or eight, nine when he would do this, and he'd do it, not all the time, but quite regularly. And I learned that there were judgments you could make, mm. and that certainly in my eyes, Dad was normally absolutely right, that mm. someone actually, with the, the shot was too loose. Very, very seldom he would say, look, that's beautifully, that's wonderfully well-framed. Mm. Um, and I think that that, knowing that you could look at something and say, you know what, it's great, but it could be better. Mm. Yeah. Lord Putnam, what would be your advice for emerging filmmakers today, an emerging storyteller? They have a vision, they want to create a film or a story. What would you, what would you say to someone in that situation? I'd say two things. The first thing I'd say is you're very lucky because you are not encountering anything like the barriers to entry that existed uh, when I and people of my age started. And that's not, um, that's not a whinge, it's just a fact. The very first thing you had to ask yourself when I started was, how much film stock can I afford and how much of it can I afford to get processed? That was it. And also, by the way, what we're going to have to charge, you know, what they're going to charge us, the rental, the cameras and the equipment. So they had these extraordinary physical and, and financial barriers to overcome before you had anything, before literally you could create an image. That's all collapsed. You know, I've now got equipment at home 
which is, let's say, a month, the whole lot, 1,500 quid worth of equipment, which allows me to shoot, edit, and, 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 and actually put an upload. Perfectly decent piece of work that I, if I happen to think it probably still, I still can't get good enough sound, but I'm sure we'll get around that eventually. But for the most part, I can do it. So first of all, the barrier to entry has been reduced. Therefore, if you have something to say, if you feel passionate about what you have something to say, you actually can say it. No one's stopping you saying it anymore. You know, any more than when I was a kid, when you could do that with writing, which you certainly couldn't do it with, with, with images. So first of all, if you've got something to say, say it. The second thing I would say is you're going to have to be a lot braver and a lot more savvy. And just a silly example of this is there's a book I would recommend to anyone going into this world that reads, that they should read. It's by a man called Jerry Weintraub, who I knew quite well. He's dead now. He was a, produ- a producer of a lot of quite a lot of movies. Mm. And he wrote a book called um, The Day I Stopped, The Day I Stopped Talking, You Know I'm Dead. That's what the book's called. Uh, and it's very it's a series of anecdotes, really. But he tells stories. He was at one point um, Elvis Presley's agent, and he was also Frank Sinatra's agent. He tells these amazing stories. And the story he tells about Sinatra of Sinatra phoning him one day from Chicago and saying, you know, Jerry, I'm going to pull out on this tour. It's all too much hard work. I'm exhausted, and I, I don't know how I'm going to deal with this, and blah, blah, blah. And Jerry's saying, oh, no, you can't do that. I'll come out and I'll fly out and see you. So Weintraub flies out and sees him in Chicago, and Sinatra's out there, and he's depressed, and he wants to pull out the tour. And Weintraub's saying, look, you cannot do that. You can't do that. He says, no, you've got to lead this tour through, because at the end of the tour, the very end of the tour, you've got Madison Square Gardens. And Sinatra said, what do you mean I've got Madison Square Gardens? He said, you've got the gig at Madison Square Gardens. Sinatra said, I didn't know about that. He said, no. He said, I was keeping it for you as a surprise. You know, that's the, that's the payoff for this tour. So Sinatra says, uh, Madison Square Gardens, it's, it's amazing. He said, yeah, well, um, you know, but you've got to finish the tour. So uh, Sinatra agrees and carries on the tour. And uh, there was no deal at Madison Square Gardens. He had to, from that moment on, create a deal. Madison Square Gardens had never, ever had a singer. To a sort of gig there. And Weintraub had to go and get fly down to New York, start negotiating with Madison Square Gardens in order to fulfill the commitment he made to Sinatra in order to get Sinatra to finish the, the tour. Now, my point is, unless your brain thinks that way, mm. and unless you've got the balls actually to make those sort of shortcuts, some people might feel them to be, you know, <laughs> semi-league, I don't know, whatever, whatever. That's it's the ability to do that that we're seeing. It doesn't, and that's not just about producing, it's directing. It's the business requires that you use your brain and you're courageous. You know, I've, I've got a mental thing where I'm always, I've always got plan B at the back of my mind. Not because I'm, no, for no other reasons than A, in my experience, if things can go wrong, they will go wrong. B, because it makes me much more courageous about plan A if I know I've got a backup. Whereas if I don't want to back up, I start becoming tentative about plan A. And that's a, that's a way of thinking. That's a way of training yourself. It partly relates to your very first question about when or what did I learn? I, I guess somewhere along the line, I learned that, that um, if you trap yourself into this being the only option, only happened to me once, Chariots of Fire, the big, big set, set, uh, Olympic scene where we, had the, we needed a huge crowd. Uh, there was only one day we could shoot it. It was a bank holiday Monday. Uh, we had no idea what the weather's going to be like. And I stood there waiting to see what we've done, everything we could to get this crowd. I won't bore you with all that, but stood there waiting at half past eight in the morning, knowing I needed 7,000 people. 
and there was no one. I looked down this road, nobody. And weirdly, five to nine, suddenly there was a thick black line and people started walking towards the stadium. That's the only day, that day, I had no plan B, nothing. There was no, I, there was no other day I could shoot it. The film relied on a stadium full of, and we ended up getting 6,800 people. So uh, sometimes it's like, <laughs> I guess that's the way of finishing. Sometimes you've got to get lucky. Okay. <laughs> Oh, that's great. I think that's a great way to, to, to wrap up. Thank you very much for your time. Very great pleasure. Merci. If you'd like to find out more, check out the home of Film Disruptors, alexstoltz.com, that's S-T-O-L-Z, where you can download today's show notes, sign up for updates, and get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening and look forward to seeing you again soon.